0: If you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude. It's the second to the last book in the New Testament, right before Revelation. We began our study last week in Jude, and and I'm going to do my best to try to finish it this morning. Probably not, but um, very important book for our day for sure. So as you've opened up your Bibles, let's ask the Lord to open up our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, that it has retained and always will its integrity, its power, its truth. You have said that though heaven and earth will pass away, your word will last forever. And so Lord, as we've opened up your word, you desire to open your mouth and speak to us and i pray father that we would come with that expectation and anticipation that you have something to say to each one of us no matter where we are at in life and that your word would find its way deep down into our heart and would become more and more precious to all of us father that You would silence all the noise, all the distractions in our life, good, bad, and indifferent. And just help us now to do as many did in your day. Sit at your feet and just glean all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a quick review. We looked at last week in verses 1 through 4. We saw who wrote it. That's Jude. We saw... Who he wrote it to, he wrote it to the believers of that day. And because God's word lives throughout the ages, we can trust that God is speaking to us today through it as well. And the reason for which he wrote this letter is found in verse 3 and verse 4. The admonishment to earnestly contend for the faith. Not for faith. There's many different kinds of faith, but the faith. The faith that has been imparted to us by Jesus Christ, that he has given to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And many focus upon grace as being the gift, and it is, but so is the faith. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, is very careful four or five times through that book to identify the faith that we hold on to as the faith of Jesus Christ. It's the faith that is his that he gives to us. And so we are to contend earnestly for that faith that has been delivered to us. We looked at that last week. We also looked at the reason for which there needs to be contending for the faith. And that is, as we see in verse 4, for certain men, certain individuals had crept into the church. Just that word crept makes it kind of like, oh, those sneaky little buggers, you know. They, they didn't come in pr- announcing themselves, which no false teacher comes in announcing themselves into any congregation, any fellowship. They come in um, secretively. And we also saw that it's not just false teachers, actual false teachers, but there's individuals that espouse to false teaching, that become their emissaries into fellowship. So it's not just the actual person, it's people that have been influenced by various false teachings that that are in a fellowship and, and think that that Teaching that they have received from somebody is the right thing, and, and so they begin to espouse it to others. And we also saw him beginning to describe for us some of the characteristics. As I shared with you last week, if we're going to contend for something, we, one of the most important areas that we need to understand is that who we are contending with. And so Jude will spend numerous verses identifying the characteristics of these particular individuals that bring the false teaching. And there's not just one type of false teaching. There's many. And something we have to realize is that as we get closer and closer to the last days, before Jesus returns, he warns us over and over again, false teaching will Increase like never before, and many will be deceived. And so that's why this little book is so important for us in this day and age. Because we are approaching the time of Christ's return. And we need to understand who it is that we are to contend with. We have to be able to identify them. And that's a very important aspect. And so he begins to tell us some of the things. And I had encouraged you last week to read Second Peter chapter 2. I hope you did that because this is a very uh, probably more parallel chapter 2 of Second Peter is to Jude than any other two portions of Scripture in the Bible. Except, of course, in the Gospels where you have an account of Jesus doing something and then maybe Luke would give another one as Matthew did and so on and so forth. But here, many times, it's almost word for word. And so there's great insight that can be had from Second Peter chapter 2 in regards to understanding what Jude has to say. And so one of the characteristics that we see is that they were ungodly men. Men who, though they professed to know God, they had not God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, as he's coming to the end of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us to watch out for false teachers. And he says, you'll know them by their fruits. Anybody can say anything they want, can't they? But the proof is in their actions, it's in their life. And listen, dear ones, that is something that is so important for you to lay hold of in regards to any teaching that might come blowing through the church. when I say the church, I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel, Sydney. You're part of the church, but the church on the whole. Is that any wind of doctrine that might come blowing through the church, time will tell. Its validity. For those of you that have been around for a while, and I'm not talking about age wise, but in the Christian faith for any length of time, you can identify any number of winds of doctrine that have blown in and out of the church. And where are they today? Well, they're not around anymore. And what is the fruit of them? Is the fruit of any doctrine that comes, does it? Does it cause us to know Jesus more? Does it cause us to be more humble before the Lord? Does it cause us to be more like Jesus? Well, most of them know. Any doctrine that is contrary to the scriptures will not do any of those. And again, time will tell. Time will prove that out. And so, We see that they were ungodly men and are ungodly men, if we're going to look at it in the present tense as well. And part of their teaching is that they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They use the grace of God as an opportunity for the flesh. The popular teaching of the day, and it's really not new at all, but it is that of grace covers it all that you can do whatever you want to do because grace will take care of it. Well, listen, dear ones. The grace of God is not to give you and I license to sin and live however we want, to be free from the penalty of sin. That is not the purpose of God's grace. The purpose of God's grace is to enable us to live a life in a godly manner that brings glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to be free from the power of sin. Do you understand that? The purpose of God's grace in the minds of so many people, well, I can live now however I want and I'm free from the penalty of sin. No, 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 that's not the purpose of God's grace. Though the grace of God does free us from the penalty of sin, it's not freedom to live however we want. It's freedom to live from the power of sin. You no longer have to sin the way that you did before. You owe the the flesh nothing. Read Romans chapter 6 and 7. It is so clear. Christ came not just to free us from the penalty of sin, he rose from the dead to free us from the power of sin. So that you no longer have to do what comes naturally. You can now do what comes supernaturally. And that doesn't mean that that you won't ever sin again. You'll... The only time you'll never sin again is when you breathe your last breath here and your first breath in heaven. But you can and you will gain victory over sin. And I hope that most, if not all of you here right now, can think back to times in your life, to the present, and you can, you can say, yes, I used to do that, but no more. He has freed me from that. Yes, I used to do that. I used to think that. I used to practice that. I used to, and and for many of us, the list should be a growing list. And that is proof to you, even if it's just one thing that you can think of. That's proof to you that God has for us victory over the power of sin. Amen? But I want to pick up now, after that short review, with where we left off. Looking at Jude again. In verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unaware who were before ordained of old to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And listen to this last part. We're going to camp out here for a few moments. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to focus on here is denying. Denying the Lord. Now, the obvious would be what? I don't believe in Jesus. That would be the obvious denial of Jesus, right? But we have to understand that Denying the Lord is not just an attribute or a characteristic, a possible characteristic of false teachers and false teaching. It can even exist among those who profess to know Jesus. And this is where the application we need to, to make to our life. Because the word deny comes from the Greek word that means to contradict, to disavow, to reject. To refuse. Now keep those four words in mind, okay? I'll repeat them again. To contradict, to disavow, to reject, to refuse. Now, denying the Lord. Who comes to mind? Peter, right? In fact, Jesus even said... You will deny me. He didn't just say that to Peter. He said that to all the apostles. you all be offended because of me. And we see that Peter did that very thing. Did not he disavow Jesus? I don't know the man. Did he not reject him? How so, do you say? Well... Jesus spoke to him, Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny that you even know me three times. Every time, listen, every time Jesus opened his mouth, what did he do? What did he speak? Truth, Truth, yes. But what else? He spoke the word of God. He is God. So if Jesus is God, every time he spoke, what did he speak? He spoke God's word. And so... Here, Jesus tells Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny that you even know me three times. That's the word of God. There's no debate about it. There's no argument about it. There's no question about it. And what did Peter do? He rejected it, didn't he? He said, no way, Lord. I will not do such a thing. And he was very sincere. He was very serious. But being sincere and serious is not what it's all about, is it? You can be sincerely wrong. And many people are today. And it's to refuse. And so, yes, Peter contradicted the Lord. He denied the Lord. He disavowed the Lord. He rejected the Lord. He refused the Lord. But that's not the only time that Peter did that. Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. You see, many times, not just with Peter and the other disciples, but with you and I as well, sin is something that seems to repeat itself until it is acknowledged confessed and repented of but you see when Peter was confronted this time he did not acknowledge it as being such because it continued on in his life so in Matthew chapter 16 Jesus has his disciples way up north in northern Israel and there At Caesarea Philippi, he asked them a question. Who do men say that I am? And they respond with different responses. Thou art Elijah, thou art the prophet, thou art John the Baptist. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And listen, there's no greater question to you and I than that. Who is Jesus to you? But it's not just what you will say. That is important. It's how you will live your life. Because how you live your life will attest to whether what you say with your mouth is true or not. And Peter, by inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, not Peter, But this truth, this profession that Peter made, I will build my church. And then what happens? Look at verse 21. From that time forth, what time forth? After the events that I just told you. After Jesus had just told the disciples that he's going to build his church upon the rock. That profession that he is the Christ. He began to tell them how he must, that is a very important word, must. There is no debate, there is no options, there is nothing from the foundations of the world, actually before the foundations of the world. God the Father, God the Son had determined that he would redeem you and I by sending his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to suffer, not just at the hands of the leaders, but to suffer the wrath of God being poured out upon him on Calvary. And so that word must is not a small, insignificant word. There is no other way. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. And how did Peter respond to this? He began to rebuke the Lord. Do you see the denial? Do you remember those four words that we get from this word deny? He refused what Jesus had said. He contradicted what Jesus had said that must take place. He was arguing with the Word of God. And so again, listen, dear ones, this this isn't something that just kind of sprung up, but it would continue on to that night six months later that we read just previously. You can read the whole account in Matthew chapter 26 in verses 30 through 35, where after they had had the Last Supper and they sang a song, they began to go towards the the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus told his disciples, all of you will be offended because of me. And, of course, Peter, trying to be the greatest, like all the others were trying to be the greatest, said, no way, that's not going to happen. Yes, it will, Peter. No, it won't happen. I'll die with you. And all the other disciples, not to be outdone by Peter, because they were all trying to be number one, they all chimed in in verse 35, and they said, No, we won't. It's not possible. Do you understand? They're denying Christ right there. And so it's not just, listen, it's not just what you say with your mouth. Yes, you can deny Christ with your mouth, which I doubt if any of you would think of such a thing. But you can deny Christ by how you live. Remember what Jesus asked his disciples? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know Jesus by three terms, and many mistakenly think that that's his first, middle, and last name. Jesus is his name. The angel said to Mary and to Joseph both, you shall have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, the Greek form of Joshua. But Christ is not his middle name. Christ is what he is. He's the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Savior. Lord is who he is. Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? You, are, you, are you understanding? Are you understanding? It doesn't take our lips to deny Christ. We can deny that Jesus is Lord by how I live my life. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. right after Timothy, Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Now this is talking about false teachers, but the truth of it and the application can very correctly apply to you and I because there's a truth that is stated here. They profess that they know God, but in works they do what? Deny Him. By how they live their life. There's many today that will say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm a Christian. But as you look at their life, there is absolutely nothing or very little, if anything, that would attest to that. How they talk, how they dress, how they live, how they, what they value in their life. You see, Christian is only used three times in the Bible. Disciple is used 238 times. But a Christian in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so what you read in the Bible concerning what a disciple is should be synonymous with Christian. Christian is to be Christ-like. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, you are our epistles, read of all men. You are living epistles. That's that's an ominous truth. What are people, as they reading you? What are they reading? What are they seeing? Yes, you may say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, but how you live do they go together or are they direct opposites you know something about jesus and again this is this is what god is in very interested if we were to have to say what is god's number one goal for us as a follower of jesus you'd have to say it's to become more like jesus As far as biblically speaking, you might have a different idea or opinion, but biblically speaking, God's number one desire for you is to make you more like Christ. And one of the most profound characteristics is that everything that Jesus said, you could see, lived out in his life. He illustrated it. There was no contradiction between what Jesus said and how he lived. And that is what God is desiring to work into your life, into my life. Why? Does not the world need to see Jesus today? And he's not here in his physical body as in the Gospels, but he's in you. And so our heart's cry, our heart's desire must be that of John the Baptist. When he said, I must decrease that he may increase. It has to be less and less of me. And there comes the cross, the Christ, for the believer, the follower of Christ, to crucify the flesh and the lust thereof. That it not be I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It has to be Christ. If we're going to follow Christ, if, if, if Christ is going to be reflected in our life, then I can't hold to one set of values the moment you go out this door and for the rest of the week, and then change values when you... It has to be consistent. It has to be constant. And that's only going to happen, dear ones, when you surrender your life completely to Jesus. Something I asked the Bible college students the other day that the Lord gave me, I never even thought of this before, but I asked them, I said, Can you tell me the date in which you accepted Christ? Hopefully some of you, if not all of you, can. But then I asked him this. Can you tell me the date that you gave yourself to Christ? There's a difference. Have you given yourself to Christ? Have you, as Paul begged the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, brethren, I beg you by the mercies of God that you offer yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to... Who is he talking to? I beg you, therefore, who? Brethren. He's not not talking to non-believers. He's talking to believers who had accepted Christ, but who had never given themselves to Christ so that Christ could live in them and through them. Big difference. The church is made up mostly, if not 90%, if not more, I don't know. I can't cite the percentage, but just out of 40 years of ministry, I can tell you that the church is made up mostly Of those who have accepted Christ, but those who have not given themselves to Christ. And that is your spiritual service of worship, to give yourself to Christ. He deserves nothing less than that. Is he not worthy? You counted him, I counted him worthy to suffer shame for for me. To hang there naked on the cross, body ripped apart by the scourging and the beating. Is he not worthy of your life? Is he not worthy of you to say, Lord, I bow before you and I surrender myself to you? Well, I can tell you he is worthy of He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all glory. And when you do anything less than that, you're robbing God. Because he paid for your life. Your life isn't your own. It belongs to him. And so that denying of the Lord. And for Peter and the disciples The root cause of that is the same for everybody, and that is pride. He was not willing to humble himself before the Lord and say, Lord, you are Lord. You are King. We sing those songs, lovely songs. But I love what Warren Wiersbe said, Christians lie more on Sunday morning when they sing the songs than any other time during the week. Songs like, all to Jesus I surrender, one-tenth to Jesus I might give him, would be more honest. Or take my life and let me be, some have changed the words, at least some husbands, take my wife and let me be. That's not it, gang take my life. You know, those songs were were written for a purpose. As a way for us to express to God our worship and our desire for him. Well, my goodness, at this rate we're not going to get through Jude, are we? Let's go back to Jude and we're going to fly now. Okay? So fasten your seat belts. Verses 5 through 7, Jude gives us three examples of not just God's judgment upon those of the past, but in these three, he also gives us characteristics to help us what identify false teaching and false teachers. Again, it's not just the false teacher that we have to be aware of. You're, you know, I don't know who's popular or whatever here in Australia. Unfortunately, they're probably from America. But whether it's Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, I, yeah, I always wondered, did, was that his real name? Or did he change it just to fit his, his theology dollar? Or, well, any n- other number. but. We have to know their teaching. How can I identify the teaching? And so here in verse five, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believe not. I want you, just before we look at that, I want you to jump over to verse 17. Beloved, remember. That's the same word he uses in verse 5. The implication is that they could forget, more likely, they had forgotten. He was reminding them of these important truths. And so who is it here? Well, first of all, in verse 5, It's of the children of Israel and how God judged them. Now, why did God judge them? Because they did not believe. And just as a reference scripture, I encourage you to write it down and read it later. Read Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 95, 8 through 11. The psalmist gives us another account of the children of Israel at this particular time. How even though he led them out of Egypt, They saw all kinds of miracles, they still didn't believe. The second one, verse 6, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. And so here we have the rebellious fallen angels. Some estimated a third of the angels from the book of Revelation that chose to follow Satan in his rebellion. And what was the cause, what was the root motive of Satan to rebel? Pride. I will be as the Most High, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 tells us, of Lucifer, that... He wanted to be as the Most High. He would be lifted up and worshipped as God. They weren't satisfied with what place God had placed them in, and that's nothing more than pride, is it? David said, oh, to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord is good enough for me, just to know the Lord and to walk with him. And then the third one, Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So certainly God judged them. But what was the reason? They had given themselves over. I want you to turn quickly in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16 with me. We have some very interesting insight here concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16. And follow along with me as I begin to read In verse 48, as I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom, thy sister, hath not done she nor her daughters as thou hast done. Now he's talking to the children of Israel, but he's using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. Thou and thy daughters. Listen carefully to verse 49. Behold, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What is top on the list? pride. The depravity, the depraved acts are not listed until the very end. And God always puts things in order for a reason of importance. And so pride is the first one, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty. There's pride again. And committed abomination. There is the sin that we all think that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for. That was, listen dear ones, that was simply the manifestation of the root cause What was the root cause of their actions? Number one, what is it? Pride. And I don't know if you find it as interesting as I do, but the popular movement of the day has adopted this term, gay pride. And what is it? It's, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, whether no matter what you say. This is my life, and I'll do with it what I want. Very simple. Pride is the main characteristic of false teaching. Please make note of that. Because it seeks to elevate the person or the belief that that person espouses above other people. Oh, you don't... You haven't heard this secret, this new teaching? Oh, you poor little ignorant Christian. I've been enlightened. I've received this, and and so on and so forth. Pride is at the root of all false teaching, false doctrine. And it, it, it should also be noted that it appeals to the pride of man. And that's why there's such a draw, because it's carnal. It appeals to the carnal nature of man. Well, let's move on. Verse 8, back to Jude. Verses 8 through 11, I just want to point out a few uh, quick points. Verse 9 is that here we read something that no other book in the Bible tells us about, how Michael the archangel had contended for the body of Moses. Nowhere in the Bible do we read about that. And there's a few instances like that in the book of Jude. And we don't have time to go into it, but what is noteworthy is he's using this to tell us how these false teachers... Uh, maybe you've seen this, they'll have devil stomping services. We're going to stomp the devil tonight. Okay, you did that tonight. What, how do you get back up the next day? And, and so on and so forth. And, and here he uses Michael the archangel. Archangel is one of the top angels of all the angels. He didn't come against him in his own power or strength. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Totally dependent, reliant upon the Lord not in his own power, his own strength. And then moving on <clears throat> to verse 11. Forgive me for not reading the scriptures. That's not my practice. I always like to read the scriptures, but time is not permitting. Here he brings in <clears throat> three more examples of not just God judging of, in the past, but also their characteristics. He cites the way of Cain. Well, you would ask, if you're a Bible student, what is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is that he got angry at his brother, and that was spurred on by his jealousy. And so, characteristic of false teaching and such is that of anger and jealousy. And it led to what? It led to death. And you can read more about that in Genesis chapter 4. And then the greed of Balaam. What was the greed of Balaam? Well, he was a prophet for hire. There's two spellings of prophet, isn't there? P-R-O-F-I-T. And that's what he was. He was a prophet for hire. If you had the money, he would prophesy whatever you wanted to get the money. And for many false teachers, that's what it's about. It's about money, and you can read about that in Numbers chapter 20 through through 24, chapter 31, verse 16, and Revelation 2, 14. And if that was too fast for you, listen to it on, on the internet. And then the third one, the contention or the rebellion of Korah. What was at the root of Korah's rebellion? Pride. He felt he deserved to be as important as Moses was. He was like the angels, not content with the ministry that God had given him. He was a worship leader. He wasn't content with that. He thought he should be up front and listened to rather than Moses. And again, the root of that is nothing more than pride. And he was judged. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers 26, verses 12 through 16, we have a few more important points to just point out. And that is that in verse 12, and this is what is disconcerting. He says of these false teachers, these are spots in your feast of charity. What does that tell you? They were in among them. We already know that because at at verse 3 and 4, it says certain men have done what? Crept in. What's the mantra of today? Tolerance, isn't it? And if you're intolerant, God forbid. And listen, dear ones. Persecution is coming your way. It's something he has promised to the whole world. We would hope that that the rapture would happen first, but, you know, to two-thirds of your brothers and sisters in the world, it hasn't happened yet, and they're losing their life. Don't think you're going to be exempt from it. And being the mantra of the day, and has been for quite some time, is tolerance if you're intolerant, how do, you, how, do you, how do you show any intolerance? By simply speaking the truth in love. But this is what God says, and it doesn't change. God is still the same today, yesterday, and forever, and it always will be. Tolerance was, of the day, very important to some of the churches in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writing a letter says, And you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Where was she? She wasn't outside the church, she was in the church. And so that toleration, and then in verse 20 of chapter 2 as well, another church that were tolerating things. real quickly. How do you contend? Because if all we did was identify those who we have to contend with and not identify how to contend, what good what would that be? We'd, have to, we'd go away from, oh, gee, what do I do? Verse 17, we've looked at who to contend with. We've looked at what do we contend for. We contend for the faith. Now, How do we contend? Verse 17, but beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that word remember. What is implied? Well, either they could forget or they had forgotten. But what is the focus? It's the word. This right here, dear ones, is how you contend. It's the word of God, the word of God that is alive and active and sharper than any two edged sword, able to divide the soul and the spirit and the bone and the morrows a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And causes you and I to be open and naked and bare before him of whom we have to do with. It's the word of God. And the scriptures, I'll rattle them off real quickly. You can read them. But he's very specific as to the words that the that the apostles spoke. Second Thessalonians chapter two verses one through three. First Timothy four one through two. Second Timothy. Did I say 1 Timothy four? You don't know? Yeah, it was fourth Tim, Timothy. No, not that. It's first Timothy chapter four verses one and two. And then it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 or 8. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, of course. But all of these have something in common. You know what they have in common? They all talk about what's going to happen in the last days concerning this. And what's going to happen concerning this? They're going to depart from the truth. They're going to put this aside like they did in Jesus' day. Read Mark chapter 7, please, verses 5 through 13. Because as it was in the days of Jesus, so shall it be in the days when he returns. Why wasn't there one person, not just not even one person in Bethlehem waiting for Jesus' birth? They had the word. They knew where, when, and how. He would be born. And yet there wasn't one person there waiting. Why? Well, Mark chapter 7 tells us, it tells us that they had put this aside and in its place adopted the teachings of men. And out of that came traditions. And in putting God's word aside, it says in verse, I think it's verse 9, that they rejected the Word of God. And then in verse 13, it just kind of snowballs. It just, and then it says in verse 13, it says, and they counted this of no value. And that's what's happening in the church today. This is not what is taught in so many of the churches today. And it's what God said would happen, they will not Endure sound doctrine. The church won't want to hear what God has to say. They'll gather themselves instead, men that will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. But dear ones, may it not be so with you. How do you contend for the faith? Well, you need to know the word, but listen, it's not just knowing the word, you have to believe the word you have to practice the word you have to obey the word James chapter 2 verse or chapter 1 verse 22 says be not hearers of the word only deceiving yourself but be doers of the word Sunday mornings is not the only time that you need to be in the word you need to be in the word every day And you need to not just be in the word, but you need to be praying, God, put this in me. Change me. Change my heart. Change my mind. It's the word of God that renews the mind. And finally, I know I said that already, but verse 20 and 21, four things. He says, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith. How do you contend for the faith? You build yourself up in the faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, now faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But again, don't just hear it. You need to do it. You need to live it. And then praying in the Holy Spirit. You need to pray. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you to pray, because you know not how to pray, right? I mean, I don't a lot of times. And so we have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to pray. Lord, how do I pray for this? Someone comes up to you and says, you know, I'm going through this. Would you pray for me? I never just jump right in and pray. I I utter a a quiet prayer before I even begin to pray. Lord, show me what I need to pray. Because we like to deal with the symptoms, don't we? Oh, my husband or my wife is is really a, a piece of work and they're bugging me. Okay. well, should I pray that they wouldn't be a piece of work anymore and change? Or is there something in that person that needs addressed? You need the Holy Spirit to pray aright. Third thing is this. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so we have build, pray, and keep. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 21, and John chapter 15, I think it's verse 12 and 13, you do that by obeying the Lord. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. It's not just reading the word. It's obeying the word. And then number four, he says in verse 21, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Look up. Look within, become depressed. You want to be depressed? Hey, just start looking at yourself and you're going to go down in the depths of despair. Look around and become distressed. But look up and you'll find rest. So, Building yourself up in the most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keeping yourself in the love of God. Walking in obedience with Christ. And then looking for eternity. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, thank you so much for your word. What a joy. What a... What a privilege it is. And not just to gather here like we have to open your word and study, but, Lord, to now remember you, to acknowledge you and what you've done. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we partake of communion, communing with you. And, Father, we don't want to do that in the wrong way. You warn us. You tell us that we are not to partake of the bread, which speaks of the body of Christ, nor of the juice, which reminds us of the blood of Christ. We're not to partake of that in an unworthy manner. If we've judged the body wrongly, and the body is, as you tell us in your word, it's it's the church. It's fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. And so, Father, as the worship team leads us in a song or two, and, and as we come forth to acquire the bread and the cup, may there be that time of, of honesty before you. Sin in our life, unconfessed, unrepented sin. You Are plenteous in mercy you delight in the forgiveness of sins may none here this morning choose to hold on to their sin rather than to come before you confess and repent and receive forgiveness what a tragic mistake that would be but rather Lord I pray for the grace that each needs to come before you and say, oh God, forgive me, cleanse me, renew me, revive me. And then can we all then partake of the bread and the cup in a worthy manner. So Father, thank you that you've given us this wonderful act of remembrance. Thank you, Father. Amen. As the worship team leads us, if you'd just like to come up and and take a piece of bread and a piece of or and a cup and go back to your seat and we'll partake of it together.